Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. I'm your host, Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp. In this episode, John and Peter interview Parker Palmer on the Abundant Community webinar about the relationship between aging and community development. In this time, older folks have often been reduced to simply a vulnerable population without considering their core role in creating our collective social fabric. We hope this conversation reminds us all to identify aging as an asset. Here's Peter. Aging and community development, putting those together, that's an interesting could you start by saying a little more about what that evokes in your mind? Yeah, I'm 78, as I believe you are, Peter, and John is a, a little bit our senior, but not much. I'm very aware of the number of older folk around me, people in my age cohort, who really feel unseen, unheard, ignored, and yet who, who still have so very much to offer. I personally don't feel that way because I've been fortunate over the years to create a work life that is sort of self-determined, and I can keep writing and speaking as long as I'm able to do so. These elders who become invisible in the community, they have such great experience to bring to so many things. They've been around the block more than a few times. When I think about the role of the elders historically in, in many countries, I'm thinking, for example, of Latin American countries like Chile and Argentina, where it it was really the grandmothers who called those totalitarian societies back to some form of accountability. And of course, in, in many parts of this country now, it's the grandparents who are caring for the young children as that middle generation of parents finds themselves working a couple of jobs or otherwise unable to care for their own kids. So I think we have a huge asset here that is yet to be tapped and has a lot to do with how in this American culture of ours, which is both glorious and screwed up at the same time, we somehow have this notion that we have to stay young, which is kind of sort of against the laws of nature. <laughs> Suppose we decided that we wanted to engage the less engaged elders. What are the kind of spaces or thinking or invitation you would do to to initiate something like that? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is the is the public schools, where there's so much need for older adults to simply sit with children. Very often these days, teachers have too many kids in their classes in order to pay attention to each of them. So this need for older people to sit with students and do simple things like work on basic math problems or issues with reading or simply read to younger kids to provide that kind of grandparently presence that I think is so reassuring to younger children. I also think there's a great need among the rising generation of, let's say, 18 to 30-year-olds for conversations about vocation, about what am I called to in my life. It's a very confusing world that people of that age are moving into. I think it's a good deal more confusing than my world was when I was their age. And here we have elders who've negotiated some of that kind of thing and with proper training in how to be a mentor rather than someone who sees his or her role as telling a young person what to do, but how to be a, someone who evokes the dreams and aspirations and hopes of younger people and, and knows how to help them sort things out. That's an enormously valuable role in a world like ours. We share an interest in faith communities, both traditionally and non-traditionally, 
defined people who gather around deep questions of meaning and purpose as informed by various traditions, some of them emerging traditions. I've often wondered why our faith communities are not doing more to host these kinds of intergenerational relationships. As I understand the demographics of church life these days, this tends to be an aging population. There aren't a lot of millennials actively joining the churches. And so why not bring some new life to the church by inviting elders to play these creative roles? And and of course, this gives the elders a sense of having a valuable role in the community, which many of them start missing either on retirement or when they become empty nesters or the loss of a spouse. If something happens in one's older years that deprives one of, of, of meaning. Activities of the sort that we're exploring here, yeah. which are meaning-making activities. If you were training people, what's the key kind of training you would give people as they cross generations, move into a school or move into younger people or a vocational conversation? Let me focus on that 18 to 30-year-old group. So I think the first thing that, that I would do is to work very hard on helping people develop a capacity to listen. This is something that we do in our what we call our circles of trust through the Center for Courage and Renewal. One of the first things we do in circles is to try to help each other understand understand we're not here to make speeches to each other. We're here to listen deeply to each other, to do something that a wonderful feminist theologian called Nell Morton once named as hearing each other into speech. Mm -hmm. I really love that phrase. Everyone has something to say behind what they're saying, or they have a question behind their question. We can serve each other so powerfully well by hearing each other into speech. The way we do that is pretty simple. When our circles gather, we say, rule number one is there shall be no fixing, no saving, no advising, and no correcting each other. (laughs) Usually when we announce that, and and we're talking here about 25 people who are going to experience, let's say, five or six retreats with each other of three days each over a year and a half, somebody says, well, what in heaven's name are we going to do for the next year and a half? You've just taken away everything we know how to do and, and, and like to do. But of course, what we've taken way are precisely those behaviors that tend to end conversations quickly and to drive us back into hiding, as it were. So if I sit down with a 22-year-old person and I listen for five minutes uh, and, and I start telling them what I think they ought to do with their life, given the very few initial surface clues they've given me, that effectively ends the conversation. But if I, if I know how to to listen, and then secondly, to ask honest, open questions, which turns out to be uh, a high art, really, because most of us are trained to ask questions that are really little speeches in disguise or, or little advices in disguise. So when I teach people the protocols for asking honest, open questions, I'll often say, have you thought about seeing a therapist is not an honest, open question? Uh, you might as well fess up and say, I think you ought to see a therapist, but that's not your job. That's not what we're there for. You're here. You're present to hear that other person into speech. And if you can ask a question like the experience you just told me about that's so difficult for you at the moment, have you ever had a similar experience in your life? And if the person says, yes, well, can you tell me a little bit about it? And if they do that, and then to ask, was there anything you learned during that experience that might be helpful to you now? That's an example 
of hearing a person into deeper and deeper speech, where they start to discover that, as we Quakers like to say, everyone has an inner teacher. Everyone has a kind of inner source of guidance, but it often needs the encouragement and the evocation of another person or group of people in order to be heard and uh, in order to be followed. You've written about and talked about periods in your life, Parker, where it's been a struggle for you. One of the things I read or heard that touched me, you said everybody who comes to you in those periods always has something in mind. And the only time anybody did anything that was truly helpful was when they rubbed your feet. Uh, that was so touching to me. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's related to what you what you started with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you picking up that, that reference, Peter. So I've written about the fact and spoken often about the fact that I've had three deep dives into clinical depression in the course of my adult life, the most recent one being when I was 65 years old, so about 13 years ago. A lot of people, of course, in this society suffer from depression or, or live with someone who does. So we're all interested in how do we make meaning out of the tough experiences of our lives. And one of my ways of making meaning is to try to understand those experiences well enough to put them at the service of other people, or at very least to sort of stand in solidarity with fellow sufferers. One of the most frequent things that happens when you're depressed is that people come by and tell you you shouldn't be depressed, which, believe me, really isn't helpful. And they'll say things that actually leave you more depressed. They'll, they'll say, for example, but Parker, you're such a wonderful guy. You're writing and you're speaking. You've helped so many people and you've counseled with so many people. When they say that, the impact is now I've defrauded another person. <laughs> If they knew what a horrible person I was, which is how you feel when you're depressed, they'd walk out of the room. They, they wouldn't ever want to talk with me again. So there's this sense of fraudulence that is very depressing. Or when someone says, you should really get out of your room where you have the shades pulled because you need the safety and you should get outside and you know feel the sun and look at the flowers and hear the birds because that's all uplifting. You get more depressed because you know intellectually that it's supposed to be uplifting, but you can't feel an atom of that uplift or that encouragement in your body because your emotions are dead. So as I've written, the one person who just in some ways saved my life during my first depression was a friend, a dear friend, a man I trusted who was a few years older than I. He asked my permission to do this, and every afternoon he came by like clockwork at about four, at four o'clock. He would always let me know if the day came when he couldn't make it that day because he knew that I was kind of counting on it. And he just had me sit in a chair in my living room and took off my shoes and socks and massaged my feet for maybe 30 minutes. You know, it, it does remind folks, it certainly reminded me of, of the foot washing scenes in, in Scripture and in Christian tradition and in other traditions, too. He somehow amazingly found the only place in my body where I could feel connected to another human being. He hardly ever spoke. He was a very intuitive person. Occasionally, he would say something like, I feel your struggle today, no more than that. On other days, he might say, I feel you getting a little stronger. He wouldn't invite a conversation. He would just make these simple observations occasionally. Wow. What he gave me was one of the most precious gifts you can give a person who's depressed. And it's actually a twofold gift. One is 
a sense of connection with another human being, which you're utterly lacking in clinical depression, and that's terrifying in and of itself. And the second gift implicit in that is you've finally found someone who's not scared of your depression. The people who came by with, <clears throat> who came around with what I call drive-by advice, you know, lob it and leave, <laughs> were really people who I could tell intuitively were looking at my depression as, as a contagious disease. And if they stayed too long, they might catch it themselves. It was depressing to them to see me depressed, and so they were afraid of me. You're super sensitive to that when you're depressed, and when they drop their advice on you and, and then run, you really are left in deeper darkness than you had before. But this man stayed with me. He was faithful to me for for months. Uh, as I say, I really credit him with helping me see it through. Thank you so much, Parker. It's because it's true not just for a clinical depression, but it's true for the tragic nature of life and, yeah. and the, those hills and valleys that we all, that just being human. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when I read your title, The Abundant Community, I instantly think of this abundance that we all have if we're not afraid of each other, which is the abundance of simple presence to another human being. You've been listening to The Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. We wanted to bring you a poem by Parker about narrative threads and impermanence. It's called, Everything Falls Away. Sooner or later, everything falls away. You, the work you've done, your successes large and small, your failures too. Those moments when you were light, alongside the times you became one with the night. The friends, the people you loved who loved you, those who might have wished you ill. None of this is forever. All of it is soon to go or going or long gone. Everything falls away except the thread you followed, unknowing all along. The thread that strings together all you've been and done. The thread you didn't know you were tracking until towards the end. You see that the thread is what stays as everything else falls away. Follow that thread as far as you can, and you'll find that it does not end but weaves into the unimaginable vastness of life. Your life never was the solo turn it seemed to be. It was always part of the great weave of nature and humanity, as immensity we come to know only as we follow our own small threads to the place they merge with the boundless whole. Each of our threads runs its course, then joins in life together. This magnificent tapestry, this masterpiece in which we live forever. Now back to the conversation, as John begins to discuss how the assets that older people possess could be useful in weaving this magnificent tapestry. Let me suggest that at the current time, older people in general have had an experience that I think is an asset, and that is I think that people who lived through, I would say, the last half of the last century tend to have had more sense of mutuality and collective life than the people uh, who are here currently. A lot of reasons to explain that and a lot of research that, that identifies it. If you went to 19, 
50 on a block in a city, you're likely to find some pretty useful and supportive uh, connections that were there among the people there. I say that having organized on those blocks back then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Today, mostly, you would go to a block and people would say, well, I don't really know my neighbors. I know two people next door. Also, In terms of collective experience, we didn't have the kind of separation of income because there was a collective sense in the workplace that we called union. Where we lived and where we worked, we had a set of mutual support relationships that I think have pretty well diminished. Now, the question is, is that experience an asset today? And if it is, how might it be manifested? That's a fascinating question, John, and, and I'm delighted for a chance to wrestle with it with both you and Peter. The conversation that I have in mind is, is one about, okay, we want some of that communalism back. We want to get that interdependence back, mm-hmm. but the conditions are different. Right. So how do how do I hold my vision of possibility, which I've seen with my own eyes, together with the young person's um, struggle with a very different set of conditions, and how do we work together on the kind of social processes that might create the interdependent community that's possible today, rather than simply me sitting back as an old man and romanticizing the community of yore. Here's the example I have in mind that I've actually been working on in our work with young leaders and activists through the Center for Courage and Renewal. I spent most of the 1960s in Berkeley doing a PhD and, of course, being introduced to social movements and some some great transformative events of human history. And In fact, it was the events of the 60s that sort of kicked me out of academia as a vocation. I mean, I finished my PhD, but by the end of the 60s, my heroes had been assassinated, the cities were burning, there was a horrific war raging. That's when I became a community organizer for the next five years in Washington, D.C., feeling feeling that I wanted to use my sociology on the streets, that it would be put to better use there than in academia. So, Uh, So I've always been interested in social movement, and today I tune in, as I did several years ago, to the Black Lives Matter movement, Mm -hmm. of which I'm an absolute devotee, and I see this T-shirt that some activists are wearing that says, this ain't your mama's civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And I realize, oh, I've got some learning to do around how movements today are taking a different form than they did in the 60s. One of my most powerful experiences in recent years was in 2011, going on the annual civil rights pilgrimage led by Representative John Lewis, which was this three-day trek through Birmingham, Montgomery, and then to Selma, where on the 46th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, John Lewis led a bunch of us across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, just as he had originally at age 24. And it was very moving. I learned a lot from that. I I, I was reminded of a lot that was important then and is still important today. But I was also reminded of the fact that at that time, television 
was relatively new, and we were not nearly as inured to violence on TV as we are today. And so America was watching, and America was scandalized by the brutality of Bloody Sunday. And within a few months of that march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, Congress had passed the 1965 Civil Rights Act. I don't think that would happen today just by putting it on TV. I mean, everything's on TV, yeah. and not not much well, happens out of it, right? The, the struggle when we talk about you know the 50s or 60s is that it can be felt as a as a kind of nostalgia. Whereas I think what you're saying, Parker, there's a moving forwardness that's not clear to us now. Any thoughts you have about history and memory and what's new and fresh? And I think there's a lot to learn from the 60s. Uh, one thing, and some of it is negative lessons. This is another thing I deal with with some of my younger colleagues is that, you know, back in the 60s, uh, there were a lot of people, at least in Berkeley, that I knew who were convinced that we were going to change the world by the end of the decade. And when we didn't, they threw in the towel and went to work for Goldman Sachs. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, some of us some of us didn't but but today's today's young activists are are i think better represented by a book written by a friend of mine a young a woman 35 or so named Courtney Martin who wrote a very fine book called Do It Anyway about the younger generation of activists and her basic thesis is they understand they're not going to change the world overnight or even real soon but they do believe in incremental change and they believe in the absolute importance of witnessing to their own values in an active way. So they do it anyway. Well, that's that's a generational shift from where we were in the 60s, full of a kind of, I think, false optimism about how how efficacious we were going to be and, and then giving up when, when we weren't. That's the danger of false optimism is you throw in the towel and it doesn't work out. It's also the danger of, of having to see results, yeah. you know, as a driver of your energy. And I've always felt lucky that I've never been burdened by the need to see outcomes from my efforts. <laughs> That's, that, that is good luck, man. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Parker. You have such a beautiful language and poetry in expressing things. I, it's just a joy to listen to you and read you and know you're still out there. So thank you for that. Yeah, I want to thank Parker. I think the well from which he drinks <laughs> is one that uh, his being commends to me. And it is the way of being a friend, which I think is another way of talking about the Quaker way of understanding the world. And Parker, it comes from you like water falling. It's just uh, so clear that there is a, a source, and I want to appreciate that source. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, th- this really has been a conversation among friends, and I'm very grateful to have the opportunity. Uh, happy to be here in this world with both of you good people. Thanks for listening. You can find more information about Parker and his work in the show notes. The Common Good is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlinchamp, and produced by the incredible Joy Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman. 